The Pellicle Podcast is supported by our Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to support our website, podcast and magazine, please visit patreon.com forward slash pellicalemag. I'm Matthew Curtis, and this is the Pellicle Podcast. Welcome to the Pellicle Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Curtis, and over the next hour, we'll be digging into some of our favourite topics. Beer, wine, cider, along with the food and travel that goes hand in hand with these experiences. This week's episode is about Cascale, in a roundabout sense. First up, we have an interview with St. Austell head brewer, Roger Ryman, who not only gives us some really fascinating industry insight, but also answers the ultimate question. Sparklers, yes or no? After that, I'll be reading one of the most popular pieces we've published since we launched the site last May, all about Harvey's Sussex Best. So stay tuned for that. So whatever you're doing, please sit back, relax and enjoy the show. You're listening to The Pellicle Podcast. Cask beer. What is it about cask beer that's so, so wonderful? A single pint can turn to two or three in, in less than 40, 50 minutes. It's just something really special about British cask beer. And that's what we're going to talk about on today's show of two parts. First, in a moment, we're going to speak to Roger Ryman of St. Austell Brewery. Now, this is an interview I recorded in uh, 2018 at the on the eve of their Celtic Beer Festival, uh, which was so good, I had to go back this year. But th- because it's from 2018, it's a lot of it might seem a little dated, but much of what Roger says in his wisdom is still very relevant today, which is why I've decided to still publish it. It's a little bit noisy um, because we are in Hicks Bar, the tap room at St. Austell Brewery. Um, which I can highly recommend a visit. It's it's just a fantastic uh, brewery. It's an old tower brewery, uh, much like uh, at Harvey's in, in Lewis, uh, which will be part two of, of this show. I'm going to read uh, one of our most popular articles on the site, um, a piece I wrote on Harvey's Sussex Best. And I spoke to some wonderful people for that piece as well, including Miles Jenner, the head brewer at uh, Harvey's Brewery, and uh, Ivan Debats, the uh, the owner and head brewer at Dilla Seine in Brussels. I also spoke to Carl Seville, the the uh, the beer manager at the Harp in uh, Covent Garden, one of the best pubs in the world, and. If you go there, and I often take people there when they visit London for the first time, particularly American visitors, because it's not only is it just a wonderful pub, but the cask there is is peerless, really, within London. Um, the, the temperature, the condition, it really is magnificent. And they actually have quite a range of hand pulls on there, about eight. But I always drink the same two beers, and it'll either be... Uh, 
uh, Dark Star Hophead, but more than likely these days it is is Harvey's best. The last time I went in there, I ended up drinking about six pints of it and staying till very late just because I was having such a great time. I also had some lovely duck chicken cider, uh, which they have behind the bar in in in, in basically buckets, uh, not actual buckets, but. Uh, <laughs> bags in boxes which they take the bags out of the boxes and then put them in these plastic containers so that they can refrigerate them it works trust me anyway i'll stop waffling on we're going to go now to roger ryman like i say it's a little bit noisy but please enjoy this interview we spoke about bath ales um i'd like to pick up on um but um First, I want to talk about cask ale mm-hmm. because um, um, we've just had the cask report. Yep. Um, and we've seen that it's in decline, um, and the reasons for that could be um, could be uh, because a lot of pubs are closing, especially managed houses that do a lot of volume. Um, uh, but it could be that, that that people are losing interest. It could be to do with quality and I'm sure you have a, a lot to think mm-hmm. uh, well, well that's maybe the first thing I want to know is why do you think cask is in decline at the moment it's interesting because you try and look at um, you know where the pivot point was so because cask was a you know, if we go back a few years cask was the one sector that was outperforming the market mm-hmm. and whilst um, you know, a lot of lot of categories were declining cask was actually steadily in growth probably for a number of years uh, up until around about 2016 and that was the pivot point where mm-hmm. things changed and cast started sliding down a little bit. What was that pivot point? What, what do you think was the factors? Well, I think there's a lot said about, you know, because a lot of people try to look to sort of keg beers and say everyone's drinking keg beers. Mm-hmm. I'm not totally convinced that's the case. Some people are, but I don't think everyone is. I don't think that's sort of, you know, if you add up that sum total of that volume, I don't think it's enough to account for, for the general shift. And it's a... I think cask probably... I mean, it is indelibly linked to the fortunes of the pub. And yes. the pub as in how we see the pub. I think maybe that is changing in that we... we consumers on the whole drink and socialise in a range of different ways and a range of different venues of which actually the pub is only one format but cast beer is indelibly linked with the pub so the fortunes of cast beer and the fortunes of the pub are always going to be going to be close together um, you know the other side of it is yes the quality issue is um, inevitable and I suppose the thing with cast beer you know, the natural home of cask beer is big volume. You know, cask, what it, you know, I've always said, you know, good quality cask beer is simple. You know, it's keep it clean, keep it moving. So as long as you've got good hygiene and you've got good throughput, you should be serving good quality cask beer. But the kind of venues that where people will go and drink four or five pints of one brand of beer... From two or three hand pumps on the bar, those kind of accounts are getting fewer and further between. Also, the the culture's dying there as well. Yeah, the the volume. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, most people. I mean, you know, I'm a I'm a cask beer drinker, and um, well, I'm a I'm a beer drinker. I drink all sorts of beers, but um, 
you know, I'm unusual. I don't know if I am unusual in the modern market, but you know, I go to the pub and I rarely drink the same beer twice. If an evening, I'll go and I'll have a pint of this, a pint of that. Yep. And I thought, I'm dance around, I'll try the different things. Um, if you look in places like My Village Pub in Tregony, which is a bit of an old school pub. We're in St. Austell now. Yeah. Uh, where so, is that from? So here? Tregony's about eight miles. It's down okay. towards Truro, mm-hmm. down towards the coast down there. Um, you know, it's a traditional farming village. Uh, we've got a pub and a shop, and that's yep. about it. Um, but you go down to Tregony Pub, and we've got people down there who drink tribute, and that's all they drink, or they drink proper job. He only serves two beers, which is tribute and proper job on cask. Um, but they are always in excellent quality. But the reason is because the culture in that little bit of Cornwall is still quite traditional. Mm-hmm. So it's you know traditional guys, you know the local people, farmers, whatever, who come to the pub and they'll go out and they'll chat with their mates and they'll drink two, three, four, five pints of tribute of an evening. And, and that drives the turnover, it drives the volume, it drives the quality. And the market has diversified so much. You know, and we all know the thing about Casper, it's got to be turned over in two days, three days maximum. You know, you've got 72 bikes in a firkin. How many pubs are really doing that? Yeah. It's, uh... That's interesting. Do you think, you know, I, I, we were talking moments ago about, like, when I was in my 20s and my first cask experience was, uh, my po- first positive yep. cask experience was drinking uh, Landlord in the Bottle and Glass in, in, in Lincolnshire and in, in, in the village I grew up yep. in. Um, and that was, you know, in, in, in the pub, the, what was available was Carling, yep. Foster's, um, Cronenberg and Stella. Um, and then there were two Caspiers, John Smith's, and, and there was John Smith's Smooth on Nitro Keg, and yep. there was um, Landlord. And so Landlord was the premium, like if you want to drink an interesting beer, that was the beer that was available. But now if you walk into a lot of pubs, especially in in more metropolitan areas, the choice is of IPAs, your gamma rays, and, and your new interesting uh, Hellas lagers, and and um, so the if a younger person coming into beer right now might be more interested in in that keg option. Do you well, think, I think, a do you think of, this yeah. is going to hamper cask? I can. I mean, firstly, I can almost echo that same story from when, mm-hmm. when I started going to pubs. Um, so I was brought up in a town called Formby, just north of Liverpool. And um, you know, when I was a teenager and we used to go out drinking beer, we used to go down to a pub called Freshfield. That's really fantastic, bro. Thank you. And the Freshfield, back in those days, again, you almost think about old school pubs, it's too much split bar pubs. Mm-hmm. So the Freshfield actually had three separate bars in it. Mm-hmm. So back in the old days where you had the public bar, where beer was always like five or ten pence a pint cheaper than the lounge bar. The public bar was bitumen floor and formica tables. Yeah. Then you had the lounge bar, which was like carpets and velour seats. That's where you took your wife. And <laughs> they had the, um, what they call the kids bar at the back, which is where, which is all chrome and plastic plants where all the teenagers went. And in the back bar in the Freshfield, the choice, this was mid-1980s, was Heineken Lager or Whitbread Trophy Betteries, Whitbread Pub. However, I had established, and I didn't know what Casper was or Kegbeer was, but I'd established that if you went into the lounge bar, which is where all your mums and dads were, they had one hand pump in there of Castlead and Bitter. And I'd established that the beer that came off this pump was the beer that I liked to drink. Now, as a 18-year-old, I didn't understand that that was Casper. I just understood that this was beer that I liked. 
but it was a choice that I made and I had to sort of run the gauntlet of mums and dads to, to, to go into the lounge bar and buy this beer. Um, so yeah, I guess very similar to your, your, your experience. Uh, you might have to remind me of the question now. <laughs> the question is more like I'm just trying to dissect. Oh, the choice, choice. I'm, 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 I'm trying to dissect why you know uh, you as, as someone who is a brewer of Cascale, one of the, the biggest brewers of Cascale uh, in the United Kingdom, and, and so I feel that you, you probably have a bit of responsibility with regards to its existence. Yeah. Uh, but also you have the, uh, the you, rather than responsibility you have a stewardship towards yep. towards cask um, especially because uh, of your brewing history Roger uh, but what I'm interested in is is how uh, cask kind of comes into this modern era and, and, and embraces um, one thing that was interesting for me was sorry to yeah. interrupt is I did an article about the cask report and um, I, I spoke to, to Laura who, who works here yeah. and she gave me uh, I asked for the figures on tribute and uh, proper job and tribute was, I believe is more or less doing its yeah. thing it's not really in growth or decline but despite the decline in fact the, the, uh, the growth of proper job a pale and hoppy beer uh, yeah. was almost the opposite of the decline of cast generally so so as a business I mean if you look at our cast volumes our cast volumes are roughly flat mm-hmm. um, represent roughly 50% of the beer that we produce on site. Yeah. yeah. So about 50% cast, 30% bottle, 20% keg is mm-hmm. kind of the ratio. But the growth, we're still growing as a business overall mm-hmm. at 5%, but most of that volume growth is coming in um, in keg and in bottles. A cask is, casks is not in free fall, it's not in decline, it's stable. And the, when, the, you, the when you, when like you've got a market yeah, I'm talking about our cash. Yeah, so when you have a market that's at six, seven percent decline, and if we're maintaining volumes within that marketplace, mm-hmm. we are outperforming the market. So I think that is kind of the the, the, yeah. the question you're answering, or you're asking. What do you think that is? Um, Yeah, I, the, the obvious thing is to say quality, but I mean, that, that's the obvious thing to say. Um, I think there is there are things around brand strength and brand equity, and I suppose going back, you know, the, the whole thing with Caspia and what we were saying about the quality experience, and we all know that Caspia in great condition is a fantastic way of Absolutely. serving and drinking beer. It's not the only way of serving and drinking beer mm-hmm. um, and you know I drink cast beer but I'm I'm a I have an eclectic palate in tasting beer and uh, but cast beer in form is is a delight to behold Absolutely. and it is a world classic beer style which actually you know the comment you just made about being custodians of a, of a style for family brewers such as ourselves actually is quite a responsibility because you know the day that you can't go into a English pub and drink a pint of cast beer it's I think it's going to be a very dark day mm. um, I think to answer some of the questions around the challenges from the market rather than specifically why we're outperforming the market um, for me the challenges around cast beer are in truth, probably over distribution, and I might give you personal views rather than necessarily company views. But 
cast beer is still largely commoditized mm -hmm. and cast beer is still sold in a lot of outlets where quite frankly it shouldn't be sold so I think to a degree cast beer needs to slightly decommoditize itself Absolutely. and that might that's what keg beer's done that's that what craft might, beer yeah. is and that might involve a little bit potentially a little bit of a colour volume mm. now, in order to succeed cast beer might actually have to accept it needs to be a slightly lesser volume than it is now but if it is sold properly in the right kind of pubs that serve it in top condition then it has a future yeah um, that brings so, to when I when I spoke to John Keeling uh, uh he was one thing he said is if there was six handfuls on the bar and you and it was selling good selling a good amount of cast beer but you changed that to four yeah. and you sold the same volume but you're turning over yeah. those casts but to a degree that the, one, the ones that worry me more than even the pubs with six handfuls on the bar are the what you might call some of the chain food led establishments mm. particularly mm. those at the low end of the market yeah where you go in and you know you find two pumps of a national cast beer brand mm -hmm. and you just look at it and you think these guys don't know how to look after casks pubs should never sell cask mm -hmm. you know those kind of establishments yeah. that almost worries me more than the pub that's got six hand pumps on the bar six hand pumps at least indicates an interest mm -hmm. um, although you know, whether those beers are quality beers is, is another question. So... What do you think uh, about breweries like Cloudwater and uh, Brewdog returning to cask after dismissing it? How, how do you feel about that? If I was cynical, I would say opportunism. Um, <laughs> you know, but they'll do anything for story. I feel like that about one of them. Yeah, uh, I'll let yeah. you decide which one. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but... You know, it's each to their own, isn't it? I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, if, if that's what they want to do, and um, then good luck to them. Yeah. Um, I've tried both. Yeah. I broke a boycott um, of one brewery's beers that I try not to really drink. I'm assuming that's not Cloudwater. For the record, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I drink and enjoy Cloudwater beers regularly. Um, but um, uh, it was... Uh, last night, actually, I had... Yeah. I, Rather than uh, being mysterious, I had a pint of Dead Pony Club. I went and had one last night because uh, yeah. I was my curiosity got the better of me, and it was uh, average at best. And, and it was a launch of a new product. And I'm like, Cloudwater actually, I think that it's very easy to see what they did as cynical, um, and so many brewers do. And I think their pails might not have worked, but actually the the, the brown and the porter they produced for this relaunch were they were very yeah. very well made. Picks. I think with, within all of this, though, you've the and the other elephant in the room with cask mm -hmm. is the commercials. Yeah. So we all know that um, you know well, so was, so called yeah. you know we talk about cask beer being commoditized mm -hmm. and the pressure and the cask beer market is oversupplied. Yeah and oversupply drive, drive down price. Drive to pressure on price can also ultimately impact on quality. So there's that sort of commercial pressure to push down cast beer due to commodity. So actually, in truth, the reason that the likes of Cloudwater moved out of cast beer wasn't, I don't know, I can't speak for them, I'm not Cloudwater, but if I was to observe, 
if you were looking at it from a business point of view, they're producing their keg beers, they can sell their keg beers at a significant mm. premium because consumers will accept that premium when they're buying a inverted commas craft keg beer in a way that consumers won't accept that premium on cask. Mm-hmm. And potentially, actually, a brewery like Cloudwater has now built up, built up that reputation that they can actually release a cask now. And you know what? They can charge what they want for that cask. Yep. You know, they're not being forced down to £50 a nine or whatever it is because that's what the market dictates because they're cloud water and they can put a beer out on cask and they can charge 100 quid or 120 quid. And, or, and they were or, able to or, dictate or, yeah. pubs they wanted to uh, sell it yeah. in as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that kind of addresses the, the margin question. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the challenges on cask are... You know, over distribution, it's the margin challenge. It's actually, there's a probably you know, a lot of cask beer out there that isn't brilliant, mm-hmm. you know, but some of that is pushed down by margin. So pubs will be looking for where they can buy cheap beer from. Um, so the margin challenge, uh, yield, you know, if, you're, if you are a pub and you're looking at saying, well, I can buy cask beer and I'm going to buy it for this, I'm going to sell it for this. I'm going to make this, you know, this many pounds per pint or whatever it is profit, um, and I'm going to get this much yield out of a cask, or I buy this keg beer, and I buy it for this and I sell it for that, and I'm going to get 100% yield. The commercials are going to drive the decision. So some of this is looking at it and saying, well, how much is driven by the consumer, saying the consumer is saying I want and how much has been driven by the, you know, we talk about gatekeepers. So the gatekeepers who are looking at it from the hard commercial side and saying, you know what, if I sell that kind of beer, I'm going to make this much money. If I sell that kind of beer, I'm going to make this much money. Mm. Now, a lot of people say cask beer is undervalued in the marketplace. You might also say that some keg beers are overvalued Mm. in the marketplace. But that discrepancy between the consumer and the... um, the wholesale value of the beer inevitably is going to have an impact on on how cask beer performs. Absolutely. But I guess the heart of cask beer is that, you know, we talked about it, you know, it's it's the volume beer of pubs. Mm -hmm. It's the beer, and great cask beer is the kind of pub you go to where you're going to drink several pints, one beer, and it's going to be fantastic. And... um, Yeah, no, it's just... Something that interests me is um, the way some family and or regional brewers are engaging with the, the younger uh, arm of the brewing industry because there, there was a time five years ago when I was uh, just started writing about beer where I saw almost the traditional and modern beer scenes as two separate industries and, yep. and I've seen a lot more integration uh, certainly over the past 12 months and a couple of examples I can think of are um, Fuller's yep. have done Fuller's and Friends where they, yep. they have brewed with, with breweries like Cloudwater, like yep. Five Points, like Four Pure. Um, and uh, most recently, something that really interested me was uh, Northern Monk opened a bar in Manchester. And as a, as a statement of intent, as a Yorkshire brewery opening a bar in, in Manchester, they, they, put a, they put Landlord on. Uh, and they sell tons of it. People get yep. young people go in there and like, ah, oh, I'm gonna have a Northern Monk IPA and then some Landlord, and then get back to that. But it's it's interesting. It's just, what I'm interested in is, yeah. is 
do St. Austell. I mean, you've, got a, you've made a milkshake IPA for your beer festival that's happening tomorrow, which is that fa- that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, but how did do St. Austell feel the need to integrate with craft beer? And, and if so, uh, what's, what's the plan there? Uh, okay, let's just uh, sort of step back a little bit. So one of the, you know, the, what you said about landlord going into a, a Northern Monk uh, pub, and I think that is an interesting dynamic in the trade, is you know, actually retro is quite in. One of the interesting observations is uh, like draft bass, because draft bass has almost got a little cult following around it. It's fascinating. And, and actually nobody really knows what it is or who makes I mean, it's Marston's, of course, but yeah. you know, that, there's the retro thing around draft bass and actually, Draft Bass is, I think, quite well positioned, you know, as a growth brand going into the you know, going into next year or, or beyond. So there is that kind of that little kind of hang on to, to retro, and I think Timothy Taylor's fulfills fulfills that. Um, I think the other part of the question was, okay, what what are we doing to engage? And Do you feel you need to? I don't actually feel we need to, but equally I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I, number one, we have feel, bath ales, which I, feel, I feel like bath ales I, is but, like I, but I feel very but younger people seem to yeah, be more. Like, I feel very uncomfortable with market segmentation or brewery segmentation and defining breweries as a craft brewery or a regional mm-hmm. brewery. You know, we're a brewery that makes beer. Um, and there's another actual reality in all of this is I've been working here for 20 years where we've consistently grown our beer year on year on year on year and we're still sitting on I think we'll finish this year 6% up on our previous volume now when you consider we're a brewery that's making best parts 150,000 barrels 6% of 150,000 barrels is a significant volume of beer Mm -hmm. a lot of small breweries would be delighted just to have that 6% and that's our growth yeah so my challenge in life for the last 20 years has been constantly I can never make enough beer mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not sat on my hands here and I don't think the company's sat on our hands here thinking what do we need to do crikey we're seeing our market share people are stealing our market share we need to do something to make ourselves relevant we need to go and hang out with these kids over here or you know our mash tons are empty good lord what are we going to do you know, we're brewing 24 hours a day here. Now, I don't want to, you know, um, I'm not trying to blow our own trumpet, but what I'm saying is whatever we are doing is working. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, we're not, I'm not poo-poo to doing collaborations. We do do collaborations. We don't have a strategy around it, if I'm, but we've done a number of collaborations. And, but they're very casual. It's generally if we meet someone and we sort of say, well, let's make some beer and we'll come, come do it. Um, no, Cooper's one was a classic one. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, Tim Cooper from, not Tim Cooper, Nick, Nick Sternberg from Cooper's um, was over on holiday and he just emailed me and said, can I uh, come That's to a tour of your brewery? Yeah. I said, no, I think we can do better than that. Yeah. You can come brew beer with me. <laughs> so um, he came in and this was between Christmas and New Year last year. And uh, we brewed a Cooper's sparkling ale, yeah. dry hopped with... Um, it's one of these fruit if not mandarina um, what's the Australian one Galaxy Vic Secret no keep Ella going. no it's got fruit in there melon no whole melon whole melon that's German whole melon that's German anyway he'll come to me <laughs> yeah that's an Australian one um, 
so yeah that that was a, a really nice little twist you know the um the one that we did with the russian guys over in moscow we've um brewed with thornbridge we've uh brewed with more beer with Uber Stewart over at Harper. So, we, you know, we do these kind of things, but I suppose they are kind of brewer-led. Mm-hmm. It's the relationships that I make and the people that I talk to, I would say, hey, come on and make some beer. We're not necessarily championing that in a big way in the marketplace. It's not part of a marketing strategy for the business. Now, whether or not it should be, um, and I said, I don't want to be... Uh, I don't want this to sound the right, the wrong way, but quite frankly, I don't have the time. Yeah. You know, I, I'm running two breweries. I'm absolutely flat out trying to keep these these two yeah. breweries. How operating. is that with Bath Ales? Um, like, like, that's yeah. the, that's the, when did you buy Bath Ales? We bought Bath Ales in July 2016. So how how is uh, how has your day to day changed since you've been running two uh, breweries? Hugely. Um, it was how did you, ca- you spend it, your time it, between it, the two? It was kind of um, oh you you know you've done such a good job of this brewery in Snowstorm. Do you mind just going up and <laughs> go up to Bath? Could you do that again if that would be, be all right? So um, I've I've been heavily involved in Bath Ales project, um, and at the moment I'm spending probably the majority of my time up there whilst we've put the new brewery in and bringing that online. But I am able to do that because over the course of 20 years I've built a team uh-huh. of people here at Sonostal and one of the things that I always say about you know, brewing beer is that or running a business quite frankly is it's about people you know brewing beer is kind of the easy bit having the right people around you is the hard work and having the right people you know getting them all marching to the same tune and walking in the same direction is, is the challenge. And over the course of 20 years, we've developed a team here which is absolutely first class. And if I've got, you know, in some ways, you know, your own you know, success in management is your own redundancy to a degree. You know, the fact that I've actually built a team here that I can confidently go and concentrate on a, on a project, which is what I am doing, knowing that this brewery is operating properly, knowing that I will be informed if there's things I need to know about what's going on here. But largely on a day-to-day operation, I, I can let my team uh, run and operate this brewery. That, that's a, a very strong t- place to be in. So that's kind of where we are. The, the Bath Ales is the kind of the new baby that needs some nurturing at the moment. Mm. We've got an amazing new brewery up there. Which yeah, is, I was there with been, you yeah, a, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, a few yeah. months ago. That's it's, right. it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a really great brew house. And, um, you know, we're, we're I'm really excited about some of the beers we're starting to brew up there. Mm. And I have absolute confidence that those beers will, you know, we see those beers and they, they will grow and they'll, they'll, they'll what, be successful. What's really it. interesting to me about that the acquisition of Bath Ales is in terms of your, your volume, it pushed you over the, the uh, mm. threshold uh, set by the Society of Independent Brewers, SIBA, yeah. um, and um, you were not able to be a member, and then they changed it so that you could be a member, and you boldly uh, said, away. actually, we actually no, you, you can't just do that. Yeah. I'm very yeah. interested in, in your decision-making process as to why you uh, stepped away from from Siba because I actually feel, and this is a, this is a personal yeah. thing that um, after a lot of soul searching, I think there's, there's an importance to them, and and um, I, I, I don't know. There's a part of me that's like the industry needs to support them as much as they need to support the industry, um, but I'm very I'm very curious to find out your reasons yeah, why I you, mean, you I, stepped away. I think there's a there's a couple of things there. Um, firstly, I was at the AGM in Liverpool. Yep. The, I was, the, I was the, there. I was, that was, was held. Yep, that was and there was 
quite a lot of vitriol from yeah. some of the smaller members, which I found quite distasteful. They've left, apparently. Oh, well, good for them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there was quite a lot of vitriol, and um, I think, quite frankly, I don't have the tame time and energy to become a political football. Mm. You know, and what I saw was the risk that we would become the focus of a ideological debate within SIBA. Mm. And it's just not a place that I felt we wanted to be. You know, I didn't want to be the big brewer desperately trying to hang on to being members of SIBA. Mm. I didn't want people, you know, the small members of SIBA, you know, getting on some sort of ideological um, high horse and, you know, challenging our membership. So in some ways, um, just stepping out of the argument, taking control of it, mm-hmm. uh, just felt like the right, the right thing to do. Um, I mean, ultimately, long term, you know, I, I do concur with you that, um, you know, the directorship at CBA have the best interests of the industry at heart, and the directorship of CBA would very much like St. Oscar Brewery to be members. Mm. And I have offered to um, engage and discuss and debate that with them and debate that with their membership. I've invited them to come and hold a meeting at our brewery in Bath Ales. Mm-hmm. Um, so very much open to conversation, but I think the main reason for stepping out was just saying, look, you know, I don't want us to become the focus of this whole argument. Yeah. And I saw that risk and just thought no we'll just step away from that it was and, very um, much yourselves yeah. and fullers wasn't it you, yeah. you were you yeah. were the and, yeah. and what, that's why yeah. I find it so fascinating because it, all this polarisation over, over just two breweries and it's not like you were you, you were sorry Siva were changing the policy so that Green King or Marsden's or you know InBev yeah. Heineken could, could uh, regain some sort of association with the with Siba, uh, it was just the two of you, and I, I found it fascinatingly polarizing, especially having spent yeah. so much time in the US where the Brewers Association changes its definition every few years yeah, yeah, so Boston Beer can, yeah, yeah, can remain, yeah, and they've just, yeah. they've just done it again yeah, yeah. Um, uh, because Boston Beer are making yeah. more cider than, than yeah. and fermented malt beverages, as they call it. I think, I mean, I, I think the reality with Siba is, you know, spiritually, I support what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. As a brewery, what do we actually get out of being super members? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, in terms of real practical terms, probably not a huge amount. So, you know, what do we get out? We get put our beer in our in the Tucker's Maltings Beer Festival, which won't be again, but there will be a Southwestern Beer Festival, which only mop up a few awards there. So, mm-hmm. by stepping out, we'll give someone else a chance. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Very uh, um, very modest. Very modest. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, and actually that, that, but that was always quite quite a strong reason for membership. Um, you know, we go to the Ciba conference and we did a bit of beer, but through DDS. But I think we saw like three or four pubs through through DDS. Um, so in truth, actually, you know, what we got out from Ciba was, um, you know, I guess with everything, it's what you put in and what you put out. Um, we weren't particularly active members. Receiver. I have been to some SIBA meetings, but I wouldn't say we're particularly active members of SIBA. So I think there's a sort of spiritual engagement of what they represent and what they're trying to do. The practicalities was that we probably didn't get a huge amount out of it. You know what? I really don't want to be the focus of a big, you know, ideological debate within their organisation. So let's just take ourselves off the table and not be part of that conversation. So. Um, 
yeah, it's fascinating to see where they'll go next. Um, it's, it's such a polarising organisation. It represents less than half of the the UK. Do you think? Do you not think that Saint Austell, if it did choose to engage, could could help? Uh, it's, it almost feels like CB needs to define itself. Mm. Do you not think Saint Austell should be? I'm not putting the hard sell here. Um, it's it's just I'm, I'm I go to the craft brewers conference and see what the BA does and and you know Lord knows that the BA has its critics. Yeah. Uh, but. They seem to invest heavily. I mean, they have a lot more resources than SIBA, and this mm. is something that's very, become very apparent to me um, after speaking to people at SIBA. But do you not think that um, the industry needs a trade body, and as one of the largest independent brewers in the country, you have a responsibility to shore up that trade body? I think the problem is that there are small members who see you as the enemy. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's fascinating. Why, yep. do you th- why, why do you think the, 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 the person making 800 barrels a year uh, I think threatened by fundamentally what I've established is they don't like brewers that own pubs and um, you know we have a tighter state of 180 pubs uh, it's, uh, have they ever know, tried to sell you beer? <laughs> um, yeah they do and actually we do, we do have a tie in our pub well I say we have a tie in our pubs um, yeah we, we generally do mm-hmm. and those beers those pubs that where we do have guest beers we sell through our wholesale business, so we, we don't do direct supply into our pubs. Uh, but you know what? There are pubs. You know, if you own pubs, you like to sell sell your own beer through them. Um, our pubs are only 13%, 14% maybe of the total volume, so they don't fill our brewery up. But what I have found whenever, when I talk to a lot of the smaller breweries is a lot of, dare I say, jealousy about the fact that we are a pub-owning business. Mm. And they're like, oh, yeah, you lot, you control the market by buying all the pubs. And, like, and I see that. But, yeah, that's... Um, they yeah, have the same attitude we, towards we don't. newer brewers who are investing in... Uh, the, you're seeing smaller brewers who have emerged in the last few years investing in their own... Uh, I mean, Brewdog are one example, yeah, but yeah. Cloudwater. We've yeah. just opened a bar in London, Northern Monk. Uh, they, they, uh, they had just opened a bar in, in Manchester. Yeah. It's... I have to say, you know, to be perfectly honest, it makes absolute business sense. Absolutely. If I was the owner of a small brewery, I would absolutely be looking at opening my own retail outlets mm. and my own route to market. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a no-brainer, really. I mean, you know, you can create something where you've got control of your product, you're actually going to make a decent margin, you might actually, you know, and absolutely, if I was running a small brewery, that's exactly what I would be doing. Mm. Now, the fact is, the fact of the matter is, is... Um, you know, Walter Hicks, when he set up Sonosta Brewery in 1851, had one pub and a brewery. Mm. He brewed beer in the outhouse at the back of the pub. So what was he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he built that business up and he brewed it 150 years later. So, you know, for, for a brewery that's been around for five, ten years saying, oh, well, you know, I haven't got any pubs, it's like, well, I can't buy some pubs in 150 years, you might have an estate. Um, you know, you have to look at it in those terms. And, um, you know, you go back to the, the origins of brewery, that's exactly what we were. You know, he was an entrepreneur. He was a guy who took a chance. He's a guy who bought a pub, sold beer. He bought another pub. He built it up. And, um, but he started with nothing and he worked hard and he built a business mm. in a different generation. But, you know, same guy, same people. You know. Yeah. So, but, yeah, you do, um, you know, it's the one thing that I find is that there is a... There can be a jealousy of the fact that you know we're we're a, we're a pub owning business and mm. people see that route to market. It's it's the people can get jealous of that. 
I've got one more question. Um, it's a big one. Um, how do you feel about sparklers? I'm northern. <laughs> so? I'm not saying anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so we can go and put a sparkler on the taps right now and... Uh, they're on. Well, they're on? They're on. Well, that explains a lot. That's why, that's why I've got this wonderful lacing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Roger, thank you very yeah. much for, for taking the time to yeah. chat. I uh, really yeah. appreciate it. You're welcome. Where the wild things are. The joy of Harvey's Sussex best. In Lewis, they refer to the 19th century tower that forms the tallest part of Harvey's brewery as the cathedral. And if you stand on the bridge spanning the River Ouse in the centre of this Sussex town, nestled among the verdant South Downs, you might be lucky enough to catch the scent of sweet barley malt as brewers mash in a brew of what will more than likely be a fresh batch of Harvey's Sussex Best. While Harvey's Brewery, established here in Lewis in 1790, is not actually a house of worship, Drinking a pint of its best can be near to a religious experience. When served in peak condition, topped with a round of foam that imitates the gentle roll of the South Downs themselves, there are few other things that offer similar comfort. Best is a delicious beer that commands repeated consumption, one that is complex without ever being complicated. This is a beer that can be pondered for hours or even days or for a careless second, quickly making way for another sip. For these reasons, it is a beer cherished by many. Harvey's Best represents the quintessence of the beauty of traditional English beers, Ivan de Batz, co-founder of lauded Belgian brewery Brasserie de la Seine, tells me in a recent email. It imparts a perfect balance between malt and delicate hops, a subtle fruitiness, a great body and a fantastic, unique yeast character due to the magic of open fermentation and the fact that they haven't propagated yeast in decades. This is not the first time Ivan has spoken to me about his love for this beer. In an earlier interview from September 2017, I asked what inspired him to make his own such iconic beers like Zinnabir and Taras Bulba. He answered immediately and with great enthusiasm that it was Harvey's best. Evidently, enjoying a pint or two is a priority on his visits to the UK. Ivan also referred to a tamed wildness within the beer. On its surface, Harvey's Best is relentlessly simple. It offers you gentle aromas of cracked biscuits and orange pith. There's a nudge of sweetness from golden malt that becomes more pronounced when the beer's condition from cask is at its peak. Then there's a snap of Fuggle and Golding's hops a dusting of white pepper, nettle tea and perhaps the merest hint of lemon zest in a dry, prickly finish, all of which only serves to prime you for another taste. And yet, among all of this simple, balanced flavour, there is something else, something feral and without control, something that can hold your complete attention or pass without a second thought. It's not quite clean, yet not quite funky. It's a trait found in few other beers. Orval might be one of them, but this awkwardness of flavour isn't caused by a Britannomyces strain of yeast, as it is in the Belgian Trappist beer. It is something else entirely, a mysteriousness that somehow propels those who drink this beer regularly into a state of reverie. It is pure romance, Harvey's head brewer, Miles Jenner, 
tells me of his relationship with brewing this beer. Drawing water from a well, brewing with local ingredients and producing a beer we drink by preference. We are a very happy band. The beer was first brewed in 1955, following a period of post-war rationing that had extended into the 1950s. The intention was to brew a beer that appealed to local palates at the time. In this instance, a well-hopped bitter balanced with some residual sweetness. Following its introduction, Harvey's would survive an intense period of industry consolidation over the next couple of decades. By the late 1960s, Sussex Best was beginning to gain serious recognition, picking up major awards in the process. We were seen in a David and Goliath context. Local drinkers would refer to little old Harvey's holding its own, Miles says. To some extent, it was the stuff that legends are made of. Best totaled just 7% of Harvey's production in its first year. Harvey's Mild, by comparison, took up 74% of the brewing schedule in 1955. By 1985, these roles had reversed, Best making up 85% of that year's output, and Mild reduced to just 8%. Somewhat fittingly, it celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2005, by receiving the prestigious Champion Beer of Britain Award from the Campaign for Real Ale. Miles, who replaced his father Anthony as head brewer at Harvey's in 1986, sees the advent of camera in 1971 as a springboard for the brewery. The increasing popularity of Real Ale allowed Harvey's to gradually expand while also being able to maintain consistency. He is somewhat reticent, however, about the element of wildness that lurks unseen in every glass, preferring to focus instead on its more immediate merits. It appeals to many simply because it is balanced, full-bodied and moorish, he says. It is obvious Miles takes immense joy from being a steward for this beer. He is also honest in his admission that maintaining its consistency is never easy. To aid with this, Harvey's contracts locally grown hops and barley four years in advance, ensuring continuity within its supply chain. In March 2017, he led me on a guided tour of the brewery. Clad in a white lab coat and metal rim spectacles, there is a tempered freneticism to his words and movements. While the lower levels of the brewery resemble many a typical production facility, with packaging lines clunking and clinking heavily under the weight of casks and bottles, the upper floors take you back in time several decades. Various pumps were as two mash tuns operate concurrently, lending an unnatural warmth to a room of dark brown wooden enclaves juxtaposed by white brick and worn copper vessels. Hop-filled sacks, standing taller than you or I, lay idly, awaiting their moment to be emptied into one of two boiling kettles in the room next door. Miles' office, denoted by a sign that reads, Head Brewer, is opposite. It's not a long commute for him either. He has the privilege of living next door to the brewery. Walking past the kettle and into the adjacent room, you are met with several stainless steel open fermentation vessels on either side of a thin corridor. It is here that the wildness inherent within Harvey's beers has nowhere to hide. So potent is the aroma produced by its proprietary strain of yeast, almost strawberry-like, it soaks into every crevice and pore. Waves of off-white foam, known as Krausen, produced by the yeast during fermentation, cap several of the tanks. Others lie vacant, 
with those recently emptied marked by what looks like an immovable dark brown crust around the edge of the vessel. To this day, standing in that room is one of the most intense sensory experiences I can remember. At the end of the tour, those lucky enough to be there are crammed into a tiny room where best is served from cask via gravity alone, Miles's preferred method of dispense. There is time for a quick thirst-sating taste here before being whisked over the road to the brewery's taproom of sorts, the John Harvey Tavern, for more still. Should I have a similar luxury to Miles in being a resident of Lewis, I would likely visit this pub, or one of Harvey's three other pubs in town, the Dorset, the Swan and the Rights of Man, with alarming regularity. To drink best so close to the brewery, and perhaps most importantly in Sussex itself, is life-affirming. Thankfully, fresh Sussex best is within easy reach of thirsty Londoners like me. Many head for one of its three London pubs, such as the Royal Oak in Borough for their fix. Those in the know, however, will more than likely head to Covent Garden instead, for it is the Harp, a Fuller's pub, with a reputation for serving some of the best pints of cask ale in the capital that offers, for me at least, the finest pint of best outside Lewis. Much of this is down to the expert management of its cellar by Deputy Manager Carl Seville. Harvey's Best has permanently been on at the Harp ever since I started some ten years ago, Carl tells me. It followed former landlady Bridget Walsh from her previous pub, the Rosen Crown, in Clapham. She had an excellent relationship with Harvey's Brewery, and the beer has been a harp staple ever since. The harp receives a delivery from Harvey's once a week to guarantee freshness. The beer is served from 18-gallon kilderkins, with one ready to serve at any time, sometimes two on particularly busy weekends. There is something about having a pint of Sussex Best in the harp that compares so directly to enjoying one in Lewis itself. Perhaps, remarks Carl, it is the proximity of the pub to Charing Cross Station, the commuter gateway to Sussex and the southeast. We find many commuters having a pint of their local before they go home, he says. This has given us a great reputation. Some say the best of London, if not better than Harvey's in Lewis. Although the harp can get busy due to its location, if you time it right, just after lunch on a Tuesday afternoon, for example, bar the odd tourist or fellow work dodgers, you can have the pub largely to yourself. This gives you the perfect opportunity to sidle up to the soft ochre glow of the stained glass window at the front of the pub and lose yourself in a pint or two of best. Maybe this time you'll snare that elusive wildness you can never seem to put your finger on, but it'll probably elude you yet again. This beer to me is liquid perfection, Ivan Debat says as he signs off our recent email conversation. I smile, nodding to myself in agreement, drawing another sip of best to my lips as I do so. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you'd like to support the content we produce at Pellicle, please consider supporting us via Patreon. You can sign up by visiting patreon.com forward slash PellicleMag. Please also consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as this will help more people find the show. Until next time, I've been your host, Matthew Curtis, and you've been listening to the Pellicle Podcast. Podcast.